Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. We're talking about what happens when children with autism become adults and what that means for their parents. What are your plans? Hopefully get a house, get a nice brand new home with central air, central vac. If it works out, and I like to get a Coca-Cola vending machine too, means, and, and I'll make, if they put money, I'm going to make it very cheap, not expensive, not, maybe like, maybe like 45 cents each. I'll just make it like 45 cents. That's Doug from the documentary film Autism, Coming of Age. The film looks at how parents particularly and how we as a, are, are prepared as a society to support adults like Doug with autism. My guest is Fred Misselow, a lawyer who's working to make sure there are enough government resources for people who have autism in their adulthood. Fred Misselow, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate being here. Now, we've heard this described as a tsunami, a wave of people, uh, kids who are now have autism, who are aging into adulthood. Uh, talk about that, if you will. Well, well the, clearly there are into a large number of people who have been identified as needing long-term services and supports as a result of of having uh, being on the autism spectrum. Uh, and uh, there's no question that parents are really being challenged by uh, the current state's uh, regulation, which limits access to adult services to individuals who have to score an IQ of below 70. And uh, that excludes a number of people who are not only on the autism spectrum, but who have significant learning disorders, learning disabilities, who may not test uh, as well, or, or, but, but have uh, uh, splinter skills that exclude them. So there clearly are uh, more people who we recognize need services and supports, and uh, our, our current practice within the Department of Developmental Services excludes a, a large number of those. Okay. Uh, Sue Loring, you know this issue both personally and professionally. You have an adult son with autism, and you're the director of the Autism Research Center in, in Central Mass. Um, I didn't know until I saw this film. <clears throat> I, I didn't think about kids becoming adults and what happens. What do parents think is going to happen when they age? Well, I think that initially parents, when they're given a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder, put their all their eggs in the basket of hope that we're going to get them everything they need, we're going to get them the services they need, we're going to beat this thing. And it's a gradual process, as for some people that does happen. I have a niece who was diagnosed on the autism spectrum at three, who graduated top of her class in Salem State College and is married and expecting her first child. My son was diagnosed around the age of four. And he got everything that we could get in place for him. But as an adult, he is still limitedly verbal. He is not capable of being alone. He has poor safety skills. So you put all your eggs in that basket of hope, and it, when it doesn't work out, then you begin to start looking at what's out there, what's going to happen to my child, what can I do to position him to so that the day that we got his IQ when it was below 70, Contrary to what I had been for 18 years, fighting and trying to maximize and put him in the best light, I danced a jig. Like, mm. Oh, yes, good. It's below 70. We're not in trouble. He'll have some services. But uh, it's a long and bumpy road, and it's difficult for families to actually conceptualize when their children are young that this is not going to magically go away and that you know there's going to be planning that needs to be done. Uh, Carolyn Ryan, <clears throat> you know what it means not to have state services of the kind that uh, Sue Loring was happy to dance a jig about. Uh, your adult son uh, does not qualify for them. And uh, I wonder first emotionally when you heard that uh, and, and came to the realization that I assume, you assume, there would be some services available for him and then now you're faced with, no, there aren't. Well, mm -hmm. emotionally, um, we had... Uh, been fortunate to be in all kinds of areas. My husband was active duty military, so we moved from state to state. But we retired up in this area because this is where I'm originally from, and um, we were settled in an area which had an excellent school system, so we were very well supported through our public school system. Um, when the discussion started happening, you know, 17-ish, when we were looking at future potential for work and future potential, um, it was a school system that said, well, you know, you should be applying for this, this, and that. Um, services. So we, in fact, followed their guidance and did so. Um, 
when we, my son, we filled out all the paperwork for Department of Developmental Disabilities, um, and he got denied, um, we were kind of flabbergasted, and then we went on for an appeal, um, of which Mr. Mislow was our our, uh, representing attorney, and um, we went through the appeal process, and I think the most frustrating thing for us was during that process, um, even the state psychologist and the attorney that was representing the state identified the fact that our son needs services, will need support services his whole life. His IQ can range from 71 to 74, Um, but he is functionally um, limited or disabled. He can speak, he can work, but he can't hold a job. I mean, he can't, I'm sorry, can't um, manage his money. Um, He has difficulty um, imagining um, making change, he couldn't negotiate a contract, all of those things. And I think what happened to my husband and I, it was like getting punched in the stomach. Here we had been so hardworking parents, diligently doing our parental duty, working very hard to make him the most productive citizen we could for the state and for the country. And then the little bit we asked for in return was being basically denied. Uh, Carolyn, I want to give uh, people a chance to hear uh, from your son, actually, from the film. In this clip, we hear Dan Ryan getting skills training at his school. You want to run the register today? Me? Yeah. Wow, I'd love to. Okay. What items are non-tax? Do you remember? I don't know, Ms. McCurdy. Okay, all the clothes... The clothes... Are non-taxable? And everything else is... Taxable. That's right. You ready? Put this in the register and turn the key to REG. Hi, are you all set? my coupon. So let's start ringing. The clothing. $7.99 is non-taxable. You're right. That's $19.56. Thank you. You get $44 back. How much? 44 cents back. So that was uh, Dan Ryan, uh, Carolyn Ryan's son, from the documentary film Autism Coming of Age. I think what we learn in there is we hear Dan, with a little bit of support, he can function. I mean, he's a healthy kid, a young man, and so we're talking about the loss of the work of these people who could function, but they need this support that we're talking that, about. That's the real tragedy mm-hmm. is that people or do not need uh, extensive or expensive services, that the, the degree of services and supports really are is, 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 is very modest. Uh, and with that level of services and supports, they can become productive citizens paying taxes and being productive members of their community. And taking the burden off families uh, is so very important. So, Fred, you know, because everybody wants to know, they're saying, shoot, I could lose, use some support myself. Sure. What's the bottom line? Is it less expensive? Is it cost effective? Is it uh, advantageous for the state to sub- give the support services in order to get the return of functioning adults who could uh, work and pay taxes? There's no question that uh, services and supports for folks in the community living uh, productive lives over time is an investment in human resources. And as people develop their skills and abilities and contribute over time, that certainly inures to the benefit of the, you know, of, of the Commonwealth, that, that over time there will be less, less, less costly. The, the question also comes down to what's going to happen to people who, like Dan, who are 71 or 74 with their IQ, and the state says, not my responsibility, when their parents are gone and there's no family members, where are they going to? Are they going to show up in our emergency rooms? Are they going to show up in our homeless shelters? We're going to show up in our jails? No, that's the real question. We have to take a long view of the lifespan of our clients and say, and, and our citizens and provide a safety net for our most vulnerable uh, citizens. And what's, what the, the current policy of the, the, the Department of Developmental Services is that went into effect in 2006 is to shut the door on people like Dan Ryan. And there are many people like Dan Ryan leaving his parents adrift. Right. You know. Uh, that's my guest, Fred Misolo. He's a lawyer who's working to make sure there are enough government resources for people who have autism in their adulthood. 
Parents, if you have a kid with autism, join us at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. And those of you who are listening who are like me who had not thought about what happens to uh the kids who become adults. We, in the campaign for autism and to be aware of uh, autism, I think are only shown small children. And this is a whole other issue. Have you, are you surprised by this as I was? We're at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. You can write to our Facebook page or send us a tweet at Callie Crossley. So Sue Loring, um, you're heading up a center. You're immersed in the kind of awareness and care and working with both parents and uh, children. Uh, so you know what these numbers are. I just want to re- repeat them for people who may not know or say them for people who don't. One in ten um, of every American child is, is, is autistic or on the spectrum. One and a half million Americans are living with autism. These are... It's- you know, one in 88. One in 88. Okay. So there we have, I don't know where I got one in 10. One and a half million Americans are living with autism. I was that having palpitations. Yes. One in 10. <laughs> but, but here's my point. Uh, this is a story, as, as Fred has said, that's been repeated often. And I want to know here from both you and from uh, Carol and Ryan, who didn't have the option that you have, what are the options then? If uh, Dan Ryan, uh, Carolyn's son, cannot get services, and they pass away, she passes away, her husband passes away, what happens? What are the options? Some of the um, families that are looking at the increasing number of kids are becoming more proactive in terms of looking at what are going to be the options for my child and looking at buying homes with other families, securing the funding for um, through Section 8 housing to make it affordable, and setting up their own future for their child to have a home where they can oversee it till they breathe their last and then perhaps have siblings, if you're lucky enough to have siblings, take it on. Um, the other pieces that people look at is SSI. Um, some families... In, What's SSI? Um, sorry, I'm doing the acronym mm-hmm. thing, Social Security Income, mm-hmm. SSI, um, which isn't enough really to live on, but it can augment what somebody has. Um, The other pieces that people can look at is adult foster care if their child is living at home with them. But oftentimes what happens with adult foster care, one parent is the guardian, the other parent is the provider, Mm. and you get um, funding to be able to bring in some staff to help to give you that break and that time that you need to keep your child in your home. But as you get older, that's less and less easy to do. So that's of limited time if you're, you know, facing health issues yourself. My husband is currently disabled and probably will be for the rest of his life. And for me, adult foster care simply wouldn't be an option because I'm busy caring for my husband. Having a child with autism in the house also or a young man with autism would be, I wouldn't be able to work and I have to work to keep the roof over our heads. So some of those options, uh, you know, work for families. If you're a single parent, adult foster care simply isn't an option. Mm-hmm. So people need to sort of look ahead. And uh, it's it's <clears throat> difficult because there is that assumption as you go along that the state's going to take care of your child. And then if you push or and help push you and push, take care of your child. Exactly. Yeah. You mm-hmm. maximize everything you can for them and you get them past that magical number of 70, you're left holding, you know, the bag and, and scrambling thinking, now what do I do? Now how do I keep him occupied? How do I keep him? How do I get him a job? And I've seen families who have kids with their IQ higher who go off and and attempt college, Mm -hmm. and they do fairly well in some subjects but not in others. So there's no real college degree at the end that makes them employable. It's sort of a way to keep them occupied Mm. with their peers. It's a catch-as-catch-and situation. It is. Uh, We're going to pause there, and I want to hear from Carolyn on the other side of uh, uh, when we come back and just to talk about uh, what she did because she's without that option, the government support. And also to hear from our callers who have some comment about this at 877-301-8970. We're talking about aging with autism with a focus on the services and support systems that are available to parents and their adult children who have autism. If your son or daughter has autism, join the conversation at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. How are you preparing to see your child into adulthood? Have you begun to think about it? This is WGBH Boston Public Radio.
WGBH programs exist because of you. Ann Greenberg Traurig, an international law firm with offices in Boston and more than 30 other cities worldwide, addressing the complex legal needs of businesses from startups to public companies. Global reach, local resources. GTLaw.com. And Innuendo. Since we've been on WGBH, we've definitely seen an increase in the importance of public radio in trying to draw our clientele to our stores. Jeff Kaplan, co-owner. WGBH has a more upscale, a more professional, a more sophisticated listenership, and those people are the type that ultimately become Innuendo customers. To learn more, visit WGBH.org sponsorship. Author Andrea Stewart lives in Britain, but she was born in Barbados. Centuries ago, her English ancestor sailed to the island, as did another ancestor who was shipped there from Africa. How do you come to terms with the fact that your, your forefather owned your forefather, you know what I mean? It, it complexifies the story of race and slavery. Meet author Andrea Stewart next time on The World. Coming up at 3 here on 89.7 WGBH. WGBH Spring Auction has gone into extra innings. Bid to win sought-after gift certificates, home electronics, even Patriots tickets. You could even land an incredible getaway to Chicago, Greece, Jamaica, or any other JetBlue destination. And every winning bid helps WGBH hit it out of the park with more great programs. It's time for extra innings at auction.wgbh.org. Great question. That is a great question. And that's a great question. It's a great question. What a great question. On Fresh Air, you'll hear unexpected questions and unexpected answers. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to The Callie Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about what it means to age with autism and whether or not society is prepared to support a population of adults who have it. Fred Missolo is a special needs attorney. Carolyn Ryan has an adult son with autism who does not qualify for services. And Sue Loring is the director of the Autism Resource Center of Central Mass. Her 27-year-old son has autism. If you're a parent with a, whose son or daughter has autism, join the conversation at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. You can write to our Facebook page or send me a tweet at Callie Crossley. Carolyn Ryan. We promised to hear from you since you did not have the support service from the government, uh, which Sue was able to get for her child. What did you do? What, what options have you taken? Well, our son um, graduated and aged out at age 22 out of the school system. I mean, he, too, like Doug in the film, the, the clip that you used at the beginning, has a dream and has a goal for himself. He'd like to move out west and live in the Reno-Tahoe area and hike and be a forest ranger because he loves to do outdoor activities. Um, he's consequently been home with us in western Massachusetts for the last two years and um, a little down in the mouth because this isn't quite what he thought life would be like. Um, we are fortunate that Dan's IQ is high enough and he has had a lot of vocational training that he's actually able to maintain jobs. But he can't get there without our assistance in, in scheduling uh, transportation. Um, the only thing he does get is through Americans with Disabilities Act. He's able to access the um, bus at a little more convenient time for him. We live in Western Mass. Bus service is very sparse where we are, but we are able to access. That's the one service he does get. Um, so we've just been trying to cobble together what we can to keep him functional. He is a tax-paying citizen of this state, um, but he's living with us. Um, we've thought, um, like um, Sue mentioned about the other families, uh, we can't afford to, to buy a home at this point for him, but we've thought of perhaps moving to a home with a mother-in-law apartment to give him some sense of independence, uh, where we could still oversee him, go in and check on him, make sure he's eating properly, all those types of things. Um, Dan functions as long as somebody's able to support him and give him, like you showed in the clip, uh, guidance and give him a schedule, um, but he can't initiate and, and do all those things on his own. So at this point, um, we're doing what we've been doing for a long time, putting one foot in front of the other and just kind of blindly feeling our way. Um, and we really don't have an answer. Our temporary answer is he's at home with us. 
long term, um, we'd like to have a place for him. Um, you know, he is what I would consider functionally disabled, and that's what the, the people need to look at. How can these people function in society uh, the way society is? It's so technologically advanced and moves at such a advanced, advanced speed. He can function and be a good participating citizen, but he can't function without help. Mm-hmm. And Get right it. now, we can't, we need, you know, it's one foot in front of the other day by day. Uh, Which isn't a good answer. <laughs> well, thanks, Carolyn. Uh, let's hear from Kathy from Concord, Massachusetts. Kathy, you're on the Callie Crossley Show, uh, WGBH 89.7. Okay. Hi, and Callie, it's just an honor to see even, even speak to you. I've been a fan for so long of so many contexts. Just wanted to say that. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. And, and uh, just, okay, I brought up my, my brother. I took my brother at home from home when he was 24, and uh, he had unspecified developmental disabilities, and it took the longest time. In those days, he didn't have the diagnoses and everything. By the time I finally got him diagnosed, he had brain injury and pervasive PDD-NOS, which is the autism. But that wasn't until I just kept fighting and helping him myself to, I saw that he would get thrown out for his explosiveness. And Mm. I spent time listening to him uh, afterwards, having him write down three things he did right, three things he did wrong, and going through ages and finally learning that a big thing for him was our transitions when staff changed. He would throw out expectations so fast, thinking he understood, and he'd smile and nod, and he didn't... He didn't hear any of it. Anyway, it was quite a big deal to keep him from being thrown in jail, for mm. him being thrown in the mental hospital. I put him in Maine because he needed the country. And really worked with him over the years, and gradually the explosiveness lessened as he learned, and I found different people to help him. But by gosh, it was just... Uh, the, the the department said no. His IQ was uh, tested at seventy four, mm. but the function was sixty four, and he just could not manage without the help. Yes, you know they'd give help; it would be temporary, and then dropped, and he'd be left again. And nobody paid attention to the transition, how much he would lose in between times. And I, yes, uh, and and you know what? I want to pick up on both your points, uh, Kathy. Thanks so much for the call. Uh, the first thing, Fred Misselow, uh you're an attorney that deals with these cases all the time. I think it should be clear that there are states, there are some states that still have this IQ requirement. Massachusetts is one. Given Massachusetts' general profile, sure. this is odd. But there are other states that do not. Right. So, <laughs> so what we're talking about is who who gets in, who gets out. Yeah. Now, who who gets services? And in Massachusetts, those people who are uh, served by the Department of Developmental Services must prove three things: that they have an IQ of below 70, deficits in in adaptive behavior, and uh, that all of this happened during the developmental period. Those rules went into effect in uh, 2006. Prior to that time, Massachusetts had the American Association on Intellectual Developmental Disabilities. When the Department of Developmental Developmental Services was created in 1986, they were charged by the legislature to create uh, services to in- individuals with intellectual disabilities as defined within their regulations by clinical authority. So at that time, the department took the position that the clinical authority was the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, a professional organization that's been in existence since 1876. They're the foremost uh, leaders, thought leaders, if you will, with regard to individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. For whatever reason, the Commonwealth changed that definition in 2006 to this fixed IQ score. That puts us, only 13 states are like Massachusetts, which are restrictive. Uh, 30, uh, 36, 37 states are much more uh, broadly defined, those people who need services. Some states use the AAIDD definition, the, of the, that uh, the American the, Association mm-hmm. of Intellectual mm-hmm. Developmental Disabilities. Others use approximately 70. Others use over 70 with a standard error of measurement. Others go to the developmental disabilities, which is the most expansive uh, situation, which has, uh, in, in many people's minds, a lot of merit. There's a bill in the State House now uh, that is uh, House Bill um, 3527 that's passed a number of committees is currently in the rules committee that if allowed to get a a, a vote up and down vote in the legislature would require the commonwealth to use the old uh, definition which is 
uh, intellectual disability as defined by the American Association on Intellectual Developmental Disabilities. This would bring us into the, the 21st century. The vast majority <laughs> yeah, of states, okay. you know, mm -hmm. in, in the Commonwealth, it's cost neutral. Mm -hmm. Just because you get entitled to uh, eligible for services does not mean you are entitled to those services mm -hmm. after age 22. It's simply allowing people who everybody agrees in these hearings need services and supports. Everyone in these hearings know that bad things are going to happen if they don't get services and their families go away. It allows them at least some refuge at some point in time to be able to go to the state. So it's cost neutral. There's no entitlement to adult services. Everybody gets prioritized. Uh, so that, I think, is a solution, at least to a, a number of, of, mm -hmm. of individuals like Dan Ryan and like the, uh, like the caller from Concord. Uh, here is a question that came in uh, from one of the listeners, and that is, and and I'll, Sue, I'll have you weigh in on it first. Uh, what happens when a, a, a caregiver dies? Very often, what happens is the the individual, depending on where they're living and what other supports are in place, the the care gets transferred sometimes to siblings. The over, but sometimes siblings have had enough in their life, and they, they have to accept that they, that role, right? They do not have to. Okay, they can All right. say. Okay. No, thank you. Okay, very good. You know, mm -hmm. So that, you know, sometimes siblings will step up to the plate more often than not, but sometimes siblings, they've moved on with their lives. They're living, you know, in another state. They don't have that capacity to help, mm -hmm. just like the caller who, you know, took in her brother. She put herself at, you know, a lot of work to put him into a good place. Um, and siblings know growing up with a sibling that it is a lot of work. They're not walking into it blind right. with just altruistic ideas. Um, for some people, they just fall through the cracks. They end up in, um, prior to having my son with autism, I, I ran a substance abuse unit. And I, I got to tell you, there was a certain segment of people that we treated that we realized had you know, significant impairments and, and hindsight being 2020. Some of them were on the autism spectrum. Mm. Um, so that they fall into other systems um, because of their inability to make good judgments, um, having outbursts and all. Some of them will end up in the penal system where they uh, you know, so you got draw penal a bullseye system, on them. <laughs> penal system or ending up in, you know, earlier in the show, uh, Fred just outlined, you know, emergency rooms or emergency homeless rooms. or yep. whatever. Because, so in essence, they really become wards of the state indirectly. 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 And it's, it's not optimum. Carolyn Ryan, go ahead. You have I a just, son. You're, I, I, yes, my son, Daniel, um, we were in, in that show, Autism Coming of Age, and um, I was walking through town one day, and I just want to comment. Um, I had a social worker stop me. I did not know this woman from, from Adam, and she said to me, I saw you in the show, and I just want to tell you, I think it's, this is you know reprehensible, but she said, I work for the Department of Developmental Disabilities, and someday we'll get him when you're gone. And he's homeless. Mm. And that's the reality. Well, this makes the next uh, comment from Ryan, who wrote in on Facebook, one that all of you can take up again. You've addressed it uh, somewhat uh, through this conversation. Ryan writes, I certainly sympathize with your guests, but where is the funding for this support supposed to come from? The current system is in place because of the dire situation we face regarding all mental health funding. To use your guest terminology, opening the door to these services for people with higher IQs will mean closing the door on people who already rely on them. Fred Misselow. Well, first, we all recognize that a line has to be drawn between those individuals who receive services and those services, people who don't. The line has to be rational. It should be humane. It should re recognize that those individuals who are categorically denied as a result of a meaningless number on an IQ is, is not the, the best social policy. It's the worst type of social policy. The best social policy is to look at needs, services, and supports, and to, and to ration out those services to those who need them most, based on a rational clinical authority that uh, is respectful. The other part of this is families that I work with, and I work with hundreds of families who plan for the future of their son and daughter, and their lives literally revolve around their son or daughter or family member with special needs and intellectual developmental disability or with other disability that requires long-term services and supports. Families don't go away. They simply need a little bit of help. 
They simply, they're not looking for the state to take over and to not provide support. They just want some sense that their government works for them, that their government recognizes that there are limits to what a family can do. And it is simply inequitable and unfair for the Ryans or other people similarly situated like the Ryans to basically be told by the Commonwealth, you're on your own or and we, we recognize it here, you, you need services and supports. Everyone recognizes you need services and supports, but because of this, the way the system is rigged, you're on your own. That seems to me to be unfair and not the kind of commonwealth that we all want to be proud of. And so, Loring, uh, as head of the Autism Resource Center of Massachusetts, I, you hear these stories and see it all, and of course you, you live it too because you, you have a child with uh, an adult child with autism. But here's the thing that I don't know that a lot of people understand about, you know, the political thing. Now that autism has become more in our minds, I mean, I think five years ago, 10 years ago, maybe people sort of knew about it. But there's been a lot of uh, awareness worked around certainly young kids. But now it's a player, if you will, in the in the mental health scene as we sort of lobby for whatever limited funds there are vis-a-vis what what Ryan has said. So will there be more attention paid now to this, this the simple requests of support that Fred is talking about, that Carolyn is talking about, that you know how much is is needed so well? Will there will will autism get a bigger space now in the on in the mental health uh I don't know, group, I guess. <laughs> well I would I would think so. About 10 years ago, various autism organizations came together and formed an organization called AFAM, Advocates for Autism of Massachusetts. Um, And we've been somewhat successful. Um, AFAM was a player in getting the um, ARICA law passed prior to... What's ARICA? ARICA is um, an act relative to insurance coverage for autism. Okay. And the law mandates that insurances must pay for medically necessary treatments for autism. Prior to that, in this state, you had a child with autism. You didn't get services for your child. If you went for speech therapy under Mm. your insurance Mm. policy, they would say, he has autism, we don't cover that. Mm. And so you didn't have access to health care for your child with autism for that specific condition. So we've been able to get that passed. And, And a good portion of the state's residents now have that opportunity. If you have a self-funded plan or if you're on Mass Health, you don't have that yet. Mm-hmm. But we continue to work on that. So AFAM is, you know, here working with families, working with the different autism organizations up on Beacon Hill to advocate for a change in how we determine eligibility. Because autism is sort of it's just one of many developmental disabilities that the department has to serve, but the unique nature of autism is such that in you know terms of testing an IQ, you may be able to come up with a IQ above 70, but you're functionally not capable of caring for yourself. So there's a lot of people in that gray area who have an autism spectrum disorder who test well but just simply cannot survive on their own because of the impact of the you know the social nature and the judgment and, and whatnot. Uh, Carolyn? Carolyn Ryan, go ahead. Oh, Carolyn. Mm-hmm. Yes, go ahead. Hi. I'm sorry. I thought I heard something else. I just wanted to um, say something that, that uh, Sue was addressing um, about functionally uh, disabled, and that's where I think the key lies. Um, you can have an IQ. Numbers can mean a lot, and they can mean a little. Um, I know um, my son went to a school where there were other children with other diagnoses, but because they had a diagnosis um, that included mental retardation, they had a door open to them to get all kinds of services. And can I tell you, those children functioned at a much higher level than my son. Mm. But because my son had a diagnosis of autism and the word mental retardation was never used, um, even while he was diagnosed when he was very, very young, um, because nobody knew what the future was going to be. Um, we weren't eligible for a lot of those services. I mean, that, that question was asked directly to me by the lawyer for the state, if I had, that terminology had ever been used. But I think we need to look at this at a functional level. My son can contribute, like many children, who many young people um, can contribute, but he can't do it alone. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's going to need the 
the job coach that can do the negotiating when we're not there. He's going to need the person to put together a transportation piece. And like Fred says, it's not a lot. We're not asking for the moon. We're asking for just a little bit, which I think is fair. Um, we've been taxpayers. My family's been here for generations, paid taxes, businessmen. Nobody's ever taken anything. This is the one case, and we're denied. Um, you you just opened the door for me to talk about the job coach because I wanted to give a specific example of what we mean when we talk about small support to families and to functionally to young adults who can function and can earn work. At the beginning of the show, you heard a clip from the film Autism Coming of Age with Doug. Uh, Doug has a job. Doug uh, works at a hotel that he loves working at a hotel. He's well-loved by everybody there. He does an excellent job. He's earning money. Uh, he's a taxpayer. And I want to let everybody hear this clip, and we hear Doug's father talking about his son's job coach. Initially, the job coach was important to Doug because it's very difficult for a, an adult with special needs to be considered equally with other applicants uh, because most employers don't believe they can perform equally. So the job coach was able to help bridge that gap and then address some of the learning and processing issues that adults with autism or adults with disabilities might have where they might. So you just see that there was this, this small intervention with Doug, If you uh, the film, and by the way, that came from the documentary film Autism Coming of Age. We see the, the job coach asking Doug a few pertinent questions. But pretty much after that, he's doing his thing, and he's loving his thing, and his more importantly, his employers are loving him. So there you have an excellent example of just how this can work, Fred Misolo. Well, you know, I think that people have uh, really must recognize that individuals who have intellectual developmental disabilities are contributors. They are contributors to their community, they're, to their contributors to their employer, they're contributors uh, to their neighborhood. And yes, all of us at times need services and supports. If we have a broken hip, if we have a medical condition, uh, some of us will, during all any of our lives will recognize that we need services and supports at some point in time. That doesn't mean that uh, we're not contributing on some other uh, uh, a time in our lives. Individuals with disabilities have the ability to contribute. All required is just the right level of services and supports to enable them to continue to contribute. Uh, Sue Lauren, I wanted to ask you to respond to another uh, example of small support in the film that was raised, which is group homes mm -hmm. uh, for functional adults living together, having someone come in just periodically to check on them. But they're living apart, something that Carolyn Ryan is st struggling with for her son, uh, with other adults mm -hmm. like them. And they're going to work and you know doing doing their thing. Is this very viable? And by the way, those funds are paid for by Medicaid, so it's there for them. It is. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are there are different group home models and different mm -hmm. group homes. Um, I had the experience of having my son served in a group home, and um, the cohort in the home was much older than him, so it wasn't an ideal fit. But at the time, it was a necessary step to take, and uh, he was there for a year and a half, and that group home functioned with a lot of support. There was two staff people on time 24-7. But there are other group um, living situations, group adult foster care, where you can be in a, a sort of like assisted living position, um, placement where you have some support during the day, somebody checking in, and you're able to pretty much be independent. Um, there is, right now, my son is in a um, placement that's called shared living, mm -hmm. where another family... He lives with another family. They provide the supervision that he needs. And for him, that was a better choice than that sort of group home with a lot of other people with disabilities because behaviorally that was difficult for him to cope with the behaviors of other people, and his behaviors spiraled also. So living within a family, he grew up living with a family. He's comfortable living with a family. It's what he knows, and that is a, a nice placement for him and has worked out nicely for him. So there's options if we start thinking in terms of small support, mm -hmm. which would be the point of this bill. What's the chances, Fred Misolo, of this bill getting passed? Well, I, I, I don't know. Uh, we're, we're hopeful. Uh, um, AFAM has uh, supported it. The Ark of Massachusetts has supported it. Those are the families of, uh, of people living with autism. That's great. Mm -hmm. The Disability Law Center mm -hmm. is supporting it. Uh, obviously, people who learn about this issue are very supportive, and I would simply encourage 
them to contact their state house uh, representatives and legislators to ask for an up or down vote on uh, on the on the bill. It is uh, House Bill thirty five twenty seven. It's it's gone through uh, a joint uh, uh, committees uh, favorably reported out on two two committees. I believe now it's in rules, and we're hoping that it'll get referred positively out in rules and get a vote and. Uh, th- this is is not a would not represent a watershed amendment. It's, it's a cost neutral issue. Simply by going back to where we were in 2006, adopting an external objective clinical standard uh, on the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities would enable individuals who need services and supports to get it to get it. Okay. And uh, and 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 just because they get entitled doesn't necessarily mean that 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 they're going to get. Uh, uh, a significant amount of resources, but at least there'll be a peace of mind with families knowing that when they do need the help, the help will be there. That's the last word on this subject, and thank you all so much for talking to me about it. We've been talking about aging with autism. I've been speaking with Fred Misselo. He was just speaking. He's an attorney who focuses on special needs planning and elder law. Carolyn Ryan, she has an adult son with autism. And Sue Loring, the director of the Autism Resource Center of Massachusetts, she also has an adult son with autism. Thank you all for joining us. We continue the conversation with a look at how emergency crews and first responders are being trained to recognize the signs of autism. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and Focus Features, presenting the new film Moonrise Kingdom, directed by Wes Anderson and starring Bruce Willis, Edward Norton, Bill Murray, Francis McDormand, and Tilda Swinton. Moonrise Kingdom, in select theaters now. And Newbridge on the Charles, an innovative senior living community in Dedham. The Platinum Membership Program allows you to become a social member of the community. You can find more details online at experiencenewbridge.org. And history of science. Can we have unlimited power? Discover the ways power has been harnessed from wind, from steam, even from inside the atom. Don't miss History of Science, Wednesday night at 10 on WGBH 2. On the next Fresh Air, Neil Young talks about his new Crazy Horse album, Americana, which features folk songs and songs many of us learned as children, like Oh Susanna and Clementine. Join us. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. Hi, my name is Maya, and I'm a WGBH sustainer. Sustainers like Maya break their gifts down into monthly installments that automatically renew. That helps 89.7 plan better, and better plans means fewer fundraisers. And that's why Maya is responsible for... This hour of programming coming to you fundraiser free. Thanks, Maya. Yeah, you too. Join Maya by supporting 89.7 as a sustainer online at WGBH.org. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about autism. I'm joined by Betsy Roach. She works with the Autism and Law Enforcement Education Coalition, which is training emergency workers to recognize the signs of autism. Betsy Roach, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So why was there a need to have a training program for first responders and emergency workers? Um, well, back in 2003, uh, Family Autism Center received a grant from the Dedham Institution for Savings to bring up Dennis DeBot from Autism Risk and Safety Management um, to the state, and we had him come to Curry College in, in Canton or Milton, I believe, and he presented on trainings for police officers in 
dealing with crisis situations involving people with autism. Um, our, pro, our project coordinator, Bill Kanata, Captain Bill Kanata of Westwood Fire Department and also a founding parent of Family Autism Center, he asked Dennis, well, what about firefighters? What about EMTs? And Dennis simply replied, what about them? So we realized that there wasn't anything out there, and so Bill spearheaded this mission with a group of professionals and parents to develop a curriculum for first responders that was specific to autism spectrum disorders and dealing with crisis situations because really there was nothing specific to autism in particular for these trainings. Uh, right now there's special needs training components to fire and police and EMTs, but nothing specific quite to autism and what you see with a person with autism. So Bill kind of spearheaded this program um, with the support of the ARC of South Norfolk, and we're going strong. We've trained over 12,000 first responders in the state of Massachusetts to date. So we know that about uh, a million children and teens are affected with the autism spectrum or on the spectrum for autism. Uh, what is the likelihood or what has been the likelihood that first responders like firefighters or police officers end up interacting with one of these teens or kids? Well, a few years back, some statistics came out that said that a person with autism was seven times more likely to be involved in a 911 situation than the typical um, typically developing population. Those numbers haven't been updated, but with the increase in autism going to 1 in 88 people today, uh, the likelihood is, is pretty, it, it, it's going to happen that as a first responder, you're going to encounter a call with someone who has autism. So I understand that the class is uh, two parts. You know, first uh, responders learn, you know, what it, what, the general characteristics of a person with autism, what the symptoms look like, how people uh, may exhibit them. And then second, they learn how to interact. So uh, give me like one or two symptoms and tell me how an officer would or a firefighter would respond. Sure. Um, what we do is we go in and like you said, it's a twofold um, component. So in the first hour of the training, the presenter, the consultant who goes in and trains the group, is a professional in the field being trained. So a firefighter is training his, his fellow firefighters. A police officer is training his fellow police officers. And they also have to have a loved one who's diagnosed on the spectrum. So they have both the professional and the personal background um, while they're presenting to their colleagues. So the presenter in the first hour reviews the basic characteristics of someone with autism. They go over the communication um, issues that a person with autism has. Uh, they go over physical, some physical features that may be present or characteristics that may be present in a person with autism, such as flapping their arms. Um, they talk about how they may not communicate verbally. They may use pictures to communicate. So that's addressed in the first hour. Um, and oftentimes the presenter will show pictures and video footage of their own child or their own loved one who has autism. So it's giving a concrete example to the professionals being trained. In the second hour, they go over um, situations that they will find on the job. So firefighters talk about going into a home where they've been called on for a fire and they've been told that someone with autism is in the house, so they know where they are trained on where to look. They are told, look in closets, look under the bed. These people may be frightened. Um, they're told that the person may want to go, once they're out of the house and they're safe, they might want to go back in because to them that, that their bedroom is what's safe. And so they may rush back into the fire. So they're trained to get the person into a safe, contained area with a loved one or with someone who knows them and can calm them down and, and keep them safe out of, out of harm's way. So the program has been going uh, uh, long enough for you to have some sense of, you know, what its impact is. Uh, can you speak to that? What, what ca can you see those concrete results? Yes, we can. Um, we've gotten feedback um, from several different departments, both police and fire and EMS, that have had this training. I mean, one uh, in Johnston, Rhode Island, for example, they told us that a week after being trained, um, they called us and said that we received a call with someone who has autism. The training was the training that the lieutenant got from Alec. Um, were, they were able to go. They calmed the person down, and that one call they they told us made the whole training worth it. Um, there was a situation in, in in Boston where the individual had autism, they were, they were nervous, they were upset, the EMTs couldn't calm them down, the police couldn't calm them down, but one of the EMTs had had training and was 
was on the scene and said, you know what, this looks like autism, let me try and calm them down. So rather than having to put someone in the back of a cruiser because they were out of control and it was they were at risk for safety for themselves and others around them, they were able to get the person calm, get them to the hospital, the family was able to be called, and the situation just de-escalated. And, and that's really what the focus of the program is, is making sure that both first responders and people involved in the crisis situation are, are safe. Uh, just in case someone is thinking, oh, this is another sort of goody two-shoes program, uh, on the downside, there have been some some fatal interactions before uh, with people who were not trained to see these symptoms or know how to interact. Yes, it's, it's devastating. There have been situations where um, people have been shot. Uh, people have one, one issue, one characteristic that's reviewed in the training is that um, people with autism will often have low muscle tone. And so if there's a takedown, if a police officer feels that the person is um, a risk to them or themselves, they will take the person down. And because of that low muscle tone, um, there have been situations where the stomach, the chest cavity isn't able to, it, it compacts and the person mm. able to breathe. And so, it, you know, it They've passed away that way. So you have to you have to know these situations. You have to know what the characteristics of autism are. Take that extra second to just think about it, and it could it it could help you from having one of those dire situations. Uh, Betsy Roach, you're the director of the Family Autism Center, and I just spent uh, the first part of my show talking about families uh, worrying about their uh, adult children with autism. Uh, what kind of relief has this offered families to know that there is beginning to be some sensibility with people who are out in the world who might interact with their children? It's been huge for families because not only are we training first responders on how to better serve um, their community members, we're also spreading the word with the families that it's it's their job as as parents, as caregivers, as staff in group homes, it's their jobs to also work with the individual with autism. Um, it's their job to, to train them and teach them what to do during an emergency situation. If the fire alarm goes off, you need to leave the home, practice that, uh, don't go back into the house until someone tells you it's okay. Um, we, we tell people that, you know, let your local first responders know where you are. Let them go to the fire department, say, hi, I'm here, I live here. My child has autism, so if you get a call from my house, please be aware that my child has autism and is going to need a, you know, some special treatment, um, if at all possible, during the event of a crisis. And so families are relieved. It's opened the door for communication for families to go in and talk to their own local first responders, knowing that first responders have some training. So it, it's been huge. Oh, thank you so much, Betsy Roach. This is a fascinating program and one that's so important. We've been talking about autism, and I've been speaking with Betsy Roach. She's the director of the Family Autism Center, which includes the Autism and Law Enforcement Education Coalition. You can keep on top of the Callie Crossley Show at WGBH.org slash Callie Crossley. Follow us on Twitter or become a fan of the Callie Crossley Show on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Jane Pippick, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. Our intern is Sloan Paiva. We're a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.